You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to The Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review, powered by Blaze Media. And yes, my voice is still froggy, but it is getting stronger by the day. I'm telling you, it's these times where a person really has got to appreciate God's gift of speech and, and use it for the right things. It, it is just so inhibiting. drives me nuts. Um, so I'm not going to torture you guys for the rest of the week, talking for an hour straight like I usually do. We're going to have guests on both of our shows today. And yes, it is Friday, January 18th. We will have a bonus show. This is episode 339. We're going to have Steve Dace as our guest. Episode 340 will be with Mark Morgan, former head of Border Patrol. Make sure you do not miss that show. So it will be a lot of guest talking. So you don't have to hear the frog, the nasal voice, the sneezing, coughing, and puking, and everything else. I got my tissue box here. But before we get to our guest, I just, we're going to do something different today. We haven't done a book review in a long time. Something I really want to do more in general. There's some health care books I want to have or authors I want to have on the show. But it's time we look broadly at what's going on. I laugh at what this phony conservative movement did to Steve King, as ineffective and clumsy as he's been. He's not Hitler, but he was treated as such by many of our colleagues. And they thought, look, what starts with Steve King won't go anywhere else. Well, it turns out today, Kevin McCarthy kicked Jody Heiss, who's one of the potential new heads of the Freedom Caucus off of the Armed Services Committee, simply because he voted against him in the Speaker's vote on the House floor on January 3rd. Now, what's funny about all this stuff, everything going on here, is that I warned the Freedom Caucus. I warned them in two different articles. You could Google it. Freedom Caucus Blueprint, Daniel Horowitz. Here's the blueprint. I sent it to them. Meadows tells me, passed it around. Here's what you need to do. Start your own pack. Secede from the conference. Do your own messaging. Do your own policy. Do, do your own field hearings. Screw the committee assignments. They don't do anything of, of, of worth anyway. Go out in the field. Bring your message to the people. Have your own branding. And I showed how you could bridge this still officially being on the ballot as a Republican so you don't have the ballot access problem, but you have your own branding. Otherwise, you will go down with the ship as Moses warned the Jews who are, who are joining Korak and all those dudes. But nothing changes. Nothing changes, and now they're going to get punished. Why does nothing change? Why does nothing ever change? A lot of you ask me the question, why is no one talking about what you're talking about with the cartels? Why does no one realize the severity of what you realize with the courts? Today, we're going to find out. Steve Dace, as you all know, doesn't really need much of an intro. He's my soulmate in this business, uh, colleague, longtime colleague here at Blaze Media. He's got his own TV show as well as his podcast. He's written a number of books, but now he has a brand new book out. 
truth bombs confronting the lies conservatives believe to our own demise. You know, Steve, you all you often call me the prophet of lamentation, but this sure looks <laughs> like a book of lamentations, no? It is. And, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a backstory uh, to why this book was written, if you'll indulge me for just a second, but I think it'll it'll show your audience uh, why I went down this road. You know, we have we work in a really uncertain industry right now, and it's not even just conservative media, but more broadly, media in general, uh, you know, with algorithm changes and click through rates and ad rate changes. And there's a lot of companies, major companies all over the spectrum, Huffington Post, for example, uh, that have had to do massive cutbacks and scalebacks because uh, the, the Internet is still a place where you can make a good living. But the idea that it was going to be this indefinite printing press just isn't reality. And then you throw in what's happened to conservative media. And, and you know, we're kind of caught in a vortex here where on one hand, we have all these massive audiences we can draw. On the other hand, a lot of major legacy advertisers that are names, you know, our listeners know, household name companies, it won't matter if Rush Limbaugh has 20 million, 200 million, you know, Ford's never buying another commercial on his show to brag about not taking TARP money ever again. That's just the reality. And so, you know, with uncertain business models and, and, and then you throw in the uncertainty of our industry, you know, I, I went into a contract year last year and, you know, I was fairly confident I was going to be kicked to the curb, but nothing is for sure. And I remember the conversation I had with a woman I know that, you know, former Congresswoman Michelle Bachman. And, and this was getting to the end of her run uh, for the presidency here in my home state of Iowa. And uh, she was she was pleading with me. Uh, you know, I was I just launched a new syndicated show with Salem Media. Uh, Salem Broadcasting. And they were really hesitant about me endorsing a candidate in the caucuses because they knew it would, you know, stop the other candidates from coming on. And they wanted to parlay that into helping to syndicate my show and raise its awareness. Uh, so I'd not yet endorsed a candidate. And she was pleading with me to get off the sidelines and, and to come and help her. And she had soared to the top, winning the straw poll, and then tanked after Rick Perry got in and had a series of gaffes. And and she thought with my network of, of activists around the state that might help her to, to revitalize her campaign. And I remember asking her questions and she called me on the phone here at the house and she brought her to her bus down my street in suburban Des Moines, which really impressed all my neighbors. So that was kind of cool. Uh, and I remember asking her, Daniel, do you think you could win? You know, and she gave me, you know, uh, algorithms and metrics and poll numbers and you know, you and I know those numbers about as well as anybody in our industry does because we've actually worked on campaigns. So I, I, that's not what I meant when I when I asked her. I can get that information myself. And frankly, I probably had better information than she did. <laughs> no, I wanted to know, can you win? Do you believe you can win? And and she said to me, what could I do that would show you that, you th that I think I could win? Because I told her, hey, if, if you don't think you can win, I don't know why you think I could help you win. And she goes, well, what, what do you think I could do that would show you that I believe I could win, Steve? And I said, Michelle, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get off the phone with me. I want you and your husband, Marcus, to sit down. And I want you guys to come up with a list of, because if you flame out here, here's the truth, sister. You're going to likely disappear pretty soon in the public eye. That's how this works. And we'll be sitting here in two or three years, and you won't have the platform that you have right now as a member of Congress and or a presidential candidate. So you need to sit down. What I would suggest is you sit down and it's just you and your husband. It was the two of you when you got into this and it'll be the two of you when, when people like me don't return your calls anymore. All right. So it's your guys' name. It's your family name. 
you guys sit down and think to yourselves, who are all the people we need to call out? All the evil that needs to be exposed. Pull no punches. Go for broke. And, and with the, under, under the notion that years from now, when no one cares what I think anymore, I don't want to regret that I left any stone unturned, any ammo wasted. I fired every bullet at the system I had. You do that, you go for broke. I'm getting off the sidelines and I'll do whatever I can to help you down the stretch. That was the last conversation her and I ever had. And I was sitting in, in, in the shower, getting ready to go in and do the show one day early last year. And um, that conversation came to mind. And I started just doing an outline. Suppose I got the call, hey, it just isn't going to work. We love you or it can't happen. We got to move on. You know, and if I had to go to another phase of my life career to feed my family and I didn't have a platform to, to fire bullets at hell anymore, uh, what, what is it? What is it I wish I could say? And what could I leave behind in the next generation that they would learn from the things I've learned being as, as much on the inside as a lot of people in our industry, including a lot of big names, much bigger than me, have ever had the chance to, mainly because of where I live in the first in the nation caucus state. And I, I came up with an outline uh, and, and I took it to my literary agent, uh, Frank Breeden, premier authors who used to serve in the Bush administration and, is rep- and represents a lot of big names in conservative media as their literary agent, too. And I wanted him to be sort of the crash test dummy. Uh, meaning that if he thought this was too toxic or radioactive, then I knew it wouldn't work. And his advice to me was, this is exactly what this movement needs. Don't swing away, he told me. Don't go big or go home. And so that's sort of the backstory to the book we're going to talk about today. It was, it's, it's basically, if I wrote this a year ago thinking, I want this to be my parting shot while I still had a platform, just in case the time came, I didn't have a platform anymore. So that's what I was going to ask because I'm kind of going through this now where my book is a couple years old. Everything that I wrote came true in spectacular fashion, even more than I thought it would and quicker than I thought it would with the judiciary. Everything we're dealing with comes back to that. Everything. If you don't think it does, it does. It ultimately does. And, you know, I was thinking people saying, hey, maybe you should write another book, a book, an epilogue to that. And what I was thinking is people like us, you have some authors that what they do is write books and then you don't hear from them much else other than TV interviews here and there. You and I are very prolific. We, we uh, write a lot of columns. Um, so we're always getting our message out day to day as we see it. We call the shots as we see it. We have, you know, in the weeds, individual pieces. We have more thematic ones uh, taking a, a, a longer, deeper look. Usually, if you're going to write a book, and this is what I'm telling myself, there has to be something that I feel compelling that is itching to get out that I can't encapsulate in my columns. What prompted you? So you gave the long background, but what do you mm-hmm. see in Truth Bombs that you feel prompted you? I got to get this out. The lot, one of the one of the original Truth Bombs I deal with in the book. There's an entire chapter devoted to Trump. And then, you know, as someone who's read it, he is rarely mentioned before or after the rest of the book. Uh, in fact, there's more footnote, there's more pages of footnotes in this book than there probably are references to Trump. And it's because there's this notion that everything was great. And Trump came along, this grifter and con man and, exp- and, and exploited and paid off all these people and black Mary and, and black Mary, blackmail Jerry Falwell Jr. like he's supposedly blackmailing Lindsey Graham now. 
uh, and everybody was on the up and up, and everything was great when the Bushes ran the system, and we were all one big happy party until this New York grifter came along and lied to all these people, and then they fell for it. And the minute we can get rid of him, everything will be great. <laughs> and I, I felt as if that it's it's the it's the line Luke Skywalker gives to Kylo Ren at the end of Star Wars: The Last Jedi when Kylo Ren, Ren goes on this rather passionate, just completely misinformed rant. And when he gets done, Luke Skywalker looks at him and says, amazing. Everything you just said is exactly wrong. And that and that lie, that lie right there, if that's not tackled, then I fear another generation. You know, one of my favorite songs when I was a kid was Kenny Rogers, Tower to the County. Promise me, son, not to do the things I've done. And, and if, we, if we permit that lie to stay embedded, then everything guys like you and I have done all of our careers – all the friendships I've lost, all the people that have stabbed me in the back that I turned the other cheek, all the business relationships I could have exploited and made so much more money. And I didn't do it because it was going to cost me from an integrity standpoint in the mission I'm trying to accomplish. In other words, every sacrifice, every amount of suffering I've made, every enemy I've made will all be for naught if that, if that lie right there is yep. not attacked and dissected. And from there, the rest of the lies in this book uh, sort of came about from that point on. That, that's the most important thing I'm seeing right now, that Trump is not the cause of our problems. In fact, more than ever in recent years, despite the ancillary problems with him and his character and his modus operandi, he has actually provided us with more opportunities to convert to the goal line than we've had in recent memory. And the fact that we're not exposes the problem. Trump's not the problem. Yes. You know, you know, many, many of us for years have lamented, we want a hawk. We want a guy that's going to punch our enemies in the face, but who recognizes that that doesn't mean refereeing Islamic civil wars. This guy is trying to get out of them, and everyone's fighting him, and he has nobody to turn to. So my point here, and I want to I see how you finagle this in the book, which is – Trump could – right now, he's the hottest commodity in town. If you hate him, he's the most important thing. If you love him, he's yep. the most important thing. But really, yep. he's the least important factor in any of this. Um, everything yes. we've had systemically in our society, in our culture, in our body politics, obviously, the courts is very evident. That was there way before him, It's and all this stuff just gets worse. Every problem in the conservative movement has always been there and always will be there unless we move that motion – that inertia. So where do you push off from Trump in the sense of what sort of opportunities do you think we have now with him to either convert our message or at least expose the lies? Well, this is why when I wrote the chapter about Trump, I, I went to the very beginning of my lengthy interactions with him over a few years as he was gearing up to run for president. And if, if you have any interest in mobilizing the conservative base in America, and I know this is going to sound arrogant, but so be it. If you have any interest in mobilizing the conservative base in America to run for president, I'm going to be one of the first people you talk to. Because it's me, Bob Vanderplotz, and maybe one or two other people. Uh, the aforementioned Congressman Steve King, for example. Uh, it's a very short list of people who have the network of associations in the state of Iowa that can get you established. Uh, and because if you can't organize conservatives in Iowa with the how heavily influenced it is by the process and the caucuses by evangelicals such as myself, 
if you can't do it in Iowa, you don't get a chance to do it anywhere else. That's why you got to start here. Yep, it's not going to come so from New right Hampshire. Away, the, yes. So the fact that he right away came to me indicated he already to me he already was serious or at least knew who the players were and knew what he was doing. Like Marco Rubio, I always can tell, and I've told you this privately, I never chase candidates. And, and any time, why? Because I learned early in my career, anytime I had to chase one, they always sucked. There was a reason why they avoided somebody like me, <laughs> where I can give them what they want. All right, so Marco Rubio didn't come to me, all right? Oh, Scott Walker only came to me because his PR firm was the same PR firm that represented me for a time, and they finally bugged him enough and got him to do it, all right? Trump came to me, though, right away. Ted Cruz came to me, though, right away. So I was kind of enamored with the idea that Trump could do for us. And I write about this in the chapter about him in the book. Trump did not offer us a a bunch of guys like me or other peers that we used to work with that conservative review that eventually went to work with him. He didn't offer these people a bunch of payday. Jeffrey Lord, there's this idea that the Jeffrey Lords of the world just lost their minds. Because they just for 35 years. Listen, Trump has attracted some sellouts, and you and I know that. Let's not lie about that. Sure. Either, okay. But Je- but Jeffrey Lord didn't. Jeffrey Lord didn't walk the narrow road for 35 years of his life. Get into a room with Donald Trump once and just decide. You know, I don't want any integrity anymore. That's not what happened. What happened is Donald Trump offered men like Jeffrey Lord and me a bargain, and that bargain was: if you can prove to me, I want to win the presidency. If you can prove to me what you crazy conservatives want will get me what I want, I'll give you whatever you want. That's all I care about. And there was enough ample evidence that he was soulless enough that he could actually deliver. See, that's that's the inverse, Daniel, of the of the offer the Mitt Romney, John McCain candidates have offered men like me in the past. That offer was tell me you, here's here's the part of your base you need to sell out. And if you do that and endorse me, you get a seat at my table. Trump was offering a different paradigm yep. where he empowered us as a customer base. And it, for a long time, I was enamored with it. I was offered the chance to work for his campaign. I never asked what it would pay because my fear always was if I knew the Southern Hemisphere, a part of our <laughs> of the male brain wiring would take over and, I, and, and then I would sell out. So I never asked because I was afraid <laughs> to know. And, and, and I was, and the day that he came to Iowa, that, that was the day for the, for the family leadership summit. And we were all on C-SPAN that day. And he was going to, um, uh, and that was the day he said, he's never uh, asked God for forgiveness because he hasn't committed any sins. That was the day he insulted McCain as a POW. I was standing backstage from him and Frank once about 10 feet away. And uh, ostensibly for him to come and close me on the idea of joining his campaign at a high level, like working directly with him. And I remember standing there that day and, and I knew about the adulteries and his, but I, I, I thought, you know what, this might be a Samson esque. I know he's not King David. Those are terrible examples <laughs> uh, or terrible, terrible analogies. I thought he might be a Samson esque character. What do I mean? I meaning a guy who's totally carnal. I mean, Samson has a, has a rewards card at the Canaanite brothels. Okay. But, but he still, but there was enough son of a, you know, one in him that, he, that the last thing he does, he plunges the pillars to the, the fish demon Dagon face down in the dirt. Exactly. That I thought Trump could potentially be that. But when I saw the baggage that would go with that choice, I walked away that day and thought, I can't get involved with a guy this reckless, this careless. I can't defend the indefensible. Uh, and, and that's why I was never Trump during the last campaign, is, is I've made Faustian bargains to both the Republicans before, and it never gave me an ROI. And I thought, well, now, now you're asking me to make the same bargain with a guy who's not nearly the family man, not nearly the personal private morality of a George H.W. Bush, 
or a Mitt Romney. There's no way I'm going to do this. Well, then he gets into office. And lo and behold, he actually starts, not all of them, and, and not as many as you and I would like, but by and large, keeping or at least sticking to a lot of the stuff that he campaigned on. Well, now I've got a choice to make. And that choice is, well, I suppose I could ver- validate my previous never Trumpness by now. You know, how many how many shows and articles have you and I written about building a wall at the bo- guys like you and I about building walls at the border for the last five years? And now and now that you know, I remember you and I were talking that first weekend of his presidency when they rolled out the travel ban. Remember that and how awkward that was that we're like defending the guy now. But we're like, so do we now oppose the stuff that we were always for just because <laughs> Trump's going to do it? Doesn't that make us the very hacks we always exactly. condemn? Right. And, and so, you know, this was a conversation that Glenn Beck and I were having on his show this morning. What ended up happening is there was, is in the whole Never Trump movement, about 10% of us really decided to be Never Trump because we thought there's no way he was worth the baggage given what we'd get back if he got elected. And then we're finding out the other 90% are actually never conservative. And you're exactly. seeing that now and that even when Trump is right, they will do whatever they possibly can to condemn him. And, and, all, and for all of Trump's faults and almost everything he's accused of, he's actually guilty of to some extent. But here's the one thing. In my time working full time in politics, which is well over a decade now, you know, I, I, don't, I, re, I, I barely remember the Reagan years. I, I was, you know, when, when Reagan left office in January of 89, I couldn't get a driver's license yet. And now my oldest kid just took off in, in her new car to go to work. All right. I mean, that's a long time ago. In my full-time work in politics, Donald Trump is the only Republican in a leadership position in Washington, D.C., who actually is sensitive and sympathetic to the criticisms and concerns of, of, yes. of audiences like yours and mine. If Rush Limbaugh would have demanded Kevin McCarthy not cave on the shutdown in December, McCarthy Seven would have acted times. like a tree fell in the forest. Yep. yep. But, but, but when he did it to Trump, Trump's like, crap, man, those are my customers. I better give them what they want. And that, I think, and this goes back to something I've said, you've heard me say many times. I'm a horror fan. And I don't mean like slasher. That's, you know, torture porn. That's what horror is today. I mean the old stuff that deals with existential and and spiritual themes. Dr. Frankenstein always ends up hating the monster he created. Trump is the monster. The Republican Party and, and, and and the swamp and the Democratic Party and the media for all have played a role in being the Dr. Frankenstein that created him. In many respects, he, I, I, it turns out he kind of is a, a Nebuchadnezzar kind of a figure. He is sort of a divine judgment on a system that became so corrupt, people became so desperate that they turned to someone as problematic as him in the first place. So that leads me to the next question. Some of us, it's taken longer to come to this realization. Others came to it quicker. For years, many of us thought the problem was establishment Republicans, so to speak. Man, if we can just get a couple more conservatives here. Okay, this guy is vice chairman of the conference. This guy is minority whip. This guy is majority leader. We get, uh, oh, who's going to be the RNC pick? Okay, this guy will run the National Republican Senatorial Committee. Um, Then, you know, we'll have a pretty good party. Um, we'll get the conservative movement to run the Republican Party. But then it dawned mm-hmm. on many of us, and again, over the last three to five to seven years in varying degrees, oh, whoops, you can only have a spouse cheating on you while they're talking to you in the house for 30 years if you 
like it and enjoy it and don't yeah. care about it. Yeah. And then we start yeah. to realize the problem is the movement. The movement yeah. doesn't exist. Is this book you wrote, Truth Bombs, the book on the problem is us? Yeah. You want to know when I knew we were screwed? What you just described, that paradigm, but you know, when I, when I first got into conservative talk radio on a local level in Des Moines, I, I did something that had not really been done on a local level in conservative radio before. I turned it into an, uh, essentially a, a town hall for activists. And that's why the Republican Party hated me. Is conservatives started taking over a bunch of stuff in the Iowa Republican Party across the state. The, we had the Liberty Revolution. And even though I don't agree with them on everything, we actually had far more common ground than I did with the quote unquote establishment types. And so a bunch of our people end up winning these leadership positions. Um, the, the, the state of Iowa goes from, for all the, for, you know, the Republican Party hated me. And I'm, I'm the reason that we don't win any elections. You know, it's funny. When I took over that show in 2006, right before that ele- midterm election, uh, I'd been on the air only for a couple of months. And when I took over, Democrats for the first time in Iowa since before the Civil War had the governor's mansion and total control of, st- of, of the state legislature. They had they had a, they had there were only 17 out of 50 seats in the state Senate belonged to Republicans in Iowa. When I left it, to go into national media in 2011, we had a Republican governor. We had thrown out three Supreme Court justices, which had never happened in the history of the Republic. Uh, the, the Republicans had 60 out of 100 seats in the state house, and they had forged a 25-25 tie in the state Senate. So, and we had the highest turnout uh, collectively in a primary cycle in the state of Iowa's history in 2010. So, I was such a terrible influence, but we kept winning all these elections, and then I realized what they meant by it. They didn't want our people to turn out. They didn't want they, they didn't want our people there. They didn't want our people to show up to actually run for office and lead. They just wanted to show up to vote and then shut up from there. And, and when I got into the national media, a race you were involved in, and I write about this in the book, this is when I knew we were, for lack of a better phrase, effed. This is when I knew. It was the Senate primary with McConnell and Bevan. And Salem had, was really growing my syndicated show. And, we had a, we had, and they put me on live on their Louisville affiliate every weeknight. And we had Matt Bevan on several times in that primary. And, and I couldn't believe how smart he was. I was impressed with him. This guy's somewhat self-funded so he could get the starter capital to make his campaign relevant. I mean, this is a good candidate. You know, you know why we know he's a good candidate. He's the governor of the state now. So, I mean, this isn't some chemtrails guy. He was legit. And I really thought he was going to win. And, you know, I, I was doing a lot of cable news hits on CNN and MSNBC at the time as a conservative commentator. And this race would come up a lot. And I'm like, wow, this is getting a lot of media attention. I think Bevin's going to win this thing. We get to primary night. And now Kentucky's a state that I think twice in the last 25 years, Democrats did not even get 40% of the popular vote statewide in a presidential election. That's how red this state is, okay? And so all this media attention, all this work by Bevin and a great candidate, we get to primary night and he gets annihilated. But that's not even what, what made me despondent, Daniel. When I looked at the turnout, and I saw more people in Kentucky voted in the Democratic Senate primary that night than the Bevin McConnell race. I thought to myself, how the hell is this possible? All the media that's been done, all the coverage of this. And then I, and I write about this in the book. Then I went to foxnews.com. And I typed in, I, I typed in Bevin McConnell 2014. No results. <laughs> I went to msnbc.com. I typed in Bevin McConnell 2014. There were like 81 results. 
And, and you know, I went and searched at, at, at Matt Drudge's website. Like, nothing. It was like Matt Bevin was never born. Nothing from Rush Limbaugh, nothing. And, and this is why I have in the, in, the, in the book, Truth Bombs, there's a whole chapter. And that's titled, If You Ain't Got Fox, Drudge, and Rush, You Ain't Got Nothing. You can raise all the money you want. At the Cruz campaign, we had all the and, money and, and you And by the way, just to stop want. you there, Steve, I, I think you probably wrote that. I mean, obviously, fin- put the, you know, finish the book before the shutdown. That was caused. Yes. Rush declined to fight seven times. We were yelling about it. Finally, yep. something gets into him, and that changed it. Yes. The, the reality is, it, Bevin, our, our people didn't know Matt Bevin was running. Because they don't watch CNN, they don't watch MSNBC, and so if they, if they. And I learned this, man. We had the best, and you were, you know, you were part of that with me. We had probably the best internal analytics any conservative candidate candidacy's ever had on the Cruz campaign two years ago, and the and the amount of info. This is why we could do in Iowa what couldn't be emulated elsewhere is because a few of us have built such a great grassroots base here that can kind of trump the conservative echo chamber, but outside of Iowa. What we have here doesn't largely exist in any other state. And so if you don't get on the radar of Rush, Fox, and or Drudge, you aren't winning. I mean, the number one reason Cruz lost to Trump, number one reason, we, had, we raised an ungodly sum of money. We raised more money than Jeb Bush did. If you, if you take out the super facts just as a, as a candidate, we had the best organization. We had, we, had, we had Trump beat everywhere except three places. We didn't have Fox, we didn't have Drudge, and we didn't have Rush. And once those three all went in together, all in for Trump, we could never overcome that narrative. And we were done. And that's why. And that happened in mid-April after we won Wisconsin and Cruz is out of the race literally a month later. Well, that's what happened to Matt Bevin. This is why we can't take on this idea now that we're going to take on the party and win all these primaries is a joke. It's a fool's errand. And, and so what, that's when I knew not that we were if we were just crushed by McConnell because he's the incumbent. He turned in the Kentucky machine. He, he, he got Rand Paul to stay on the sidelines and he outspent his 10 to one. Fine. But our people didn't even vote. And then I remember later that year, the one primary none of us got involved in because we thought there was no chance to win was the one that ended up winning. And that was Dave Bratt over Eric Cantor. And I remember looking at those numbers. I write about this in that exact same chapter too, because everybody, because until that race, Guys like you and I were always told if conservatives are going to win primaries, they have to be really low turnout elections where just the activists turn out, right? Having been told that our entire careers, okay? Yep. And then we were told that, that, that uh, and, and well, well, all of a sudden we had the highest turnout or, or turnout increased by like 25% in the Virginia primary that Dave Bratt won. Well, how do you explain that? Well, then we were told, well, it was crossover Dem voters who were trying to embarrass the, you know, a major member of, of GOP leadership. But then when you go and look at the numbers, you find that the turnout increases actually were in the most red precincts in that district. Here's the reality. Everything your audience is told about how conservatives win elections, how you win primaries, how general elections are won is all wrong. I used to think they were just dumb. Now they're just lying to you. They don't want you to know because the first rule of the Republican Party is to screw the conservative base. Rule number two is to refer back to rule number one. <laughs> oh boy. I'm telling you, talk about profit of lamentations here, Steve. You're upending my uh, reputation here. Um, <laughs> you know, to, to, to move on here, but really actually uh, double down the same theme, why don't you talk about some of your the chapters of your book that speak to, to this next step of it? Um, 
how the enemy is us, how conservative media actually plays for the other side, sometimes unwillingly or unknowingly, sometimes on purpose. But you bring up a very sore topic in my heart. I spent years, I was the first person to cast a stone against Mitch McConnell. Um, the title of my piece was titled Storming the Castle. It eventually started a listserv email list titled Storming the Castle. And it was like, what are you talking about? McConnell is solid conservative. And then years upon, it took about three years of endless anecdotes showing people this is what he's doing, this is what he's doing. He became really unpopular. And it, and it tanked in 2017 when you saw you had the Alabama primary with um, Luther Strange, uh, who was endorsed by McConnell. McConnell couldn't show his face there. The voters like, we don't want the guy. And his endorsement killed Luther Strange, among other things. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I was thinking, man, you know, it took longer than I thought. But I think next time around, we're going to have grounds to go after him, other people. I think people are finally getting it. Then what happened while these people continued to commit adultery? While they're committing adultery, they handed us, while in bed with the Democrats, quite literally, they handed us flowers. So those flowers themselves had a toxic, caused a toxic allergic reaction. What's my analogy? They screwed us on everything. We had two years of trifecta control that I believe is the most feckless control of a trifecta majority in the history of America. Right? Did nothing, 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 nothing. But towards the end of it, you had the Kavanaugh fight. The one thing they were fighting on, and you and I know it's only because he's the hometown boy, and it's actually stemming from a bad place because that's the morphine that greases the skids for every other betrayal and allows them to hide all the way before Republican because of the courts. And that in itself perpetuates the myth that you could somehow fix the courts, and it actually raises the specter of their legitimacy, and it's killing us every day of the week since then because we've gotten nothing no benefit. We've gotten raped in the courts 50 times. On every- we are in this position because the government shut down. It's because of the courts. It's because they said you can't do this on asylum, can't do that, can't do this on UACs, can't do this on floors. Nothing, 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 nothing. Anything you want to do to secure the border or deport criminal aliens, you cannot do. Okay, that, That's where we're at now. And the fact that we've had the court, the freaking courts said a year and a half ago, DACA is the law of the land. It's illegal to follow immigration law. It stood for that long, and the Supreme Court still has not taken up the case. Anyway, I've gone long. Okay, here's my point. There was a recent poll that just came out. I don't know if you saw it. Um, Morning Consult. They had a whole write-up. Susan Collins, Lindsey Graham, and Mitch McConnell. Let's forget about Susan Collins for a moment. We're never going to go after her in Maine, whatever. We didn't care about her. But Lindsey Graham and... Mitch McConnell, two bright red states. We've been suffering from them for years, ever since the Kavanaugh thing. They've been screwing us on jailbreak. Gramnesty won't shut up about amnesty. He won't shut up about bashing the first Muslim leader in the Middle East to actually beat up the Muslim Brotherhood. I mean, horrible. Mitch is just sitting there screwing us more than ever. But right now, because the entire conservative media went and made idols out of them, their numbers, and, and as, as you talk, I'm going to dig it up because I don't have it. It's astounding how their numbers soared in a matter of six months. And all the work mm-hmm. we've done 
went in the toilet with interest. Let me ask you something. Is it not that the conservative media is the Muslim Brotherhood of politics? What the Muslim Brotherhood is to Al-Qaeda, they are to the Democrats. They are to the Republican establishment. We are actually worse off having them because if we didn't have them, people would intuitively see the betrayal. They give people just enough political fentanyl to dope our side up to not rebel. How does your book tie into that thesis? One of the chapters, the truth bombs in the book is dealing with why we can't have a third party uh, or a new party. And and yeah, there are legal uh, wranglings and difficulties, and those are some of the reasons, but those aren't really the main reason. <laughs> the main reason why we can't have an alternative party is there's too much damn money to be made and shilling for the current one. That's why. I chuckled when I saw a, a, an op-ed from a bushy in the Wall Street Journal last week lamenting how a, and I don't know who he was referring to, uh, but he was lamenting that he had heard some alleged constitutional conservative on talk radio saying that it was absolutely constitutional now for President Trump to declare a crisis at the border and divert and, and divert emergency funds towards the building of a wall. Now, I know this is you and, uh, and Mark Levin and others on our team here at the at, at the at Blaze Media have tackled this and deconstructed this. I'm not. Yeah, I'm yeah, not we actually talk read. about the merit of yeah. that argument. Okay. What made me chuckle about it is, let's say his diagnosis of what's happening intellectually is is true. Let's say that it is. He's 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 actually now condemning the same thing that quote unquote conservative media did for the Bushies when suddenly we thought. No Child Left Behind was actually really cool. And Medicare Part D, which at the time was the biggest welfare program in the history of America, uh, you know, we need guns and butter. And that's compassionate conservatism. You know, when conservative media decided to redefine conservatism for when when his bushy boys were in charge, did he write columns in in the Wall Street Journal talking about what a tremendous intellectual betrayal this is? Hell to the no. What's what's happening now is not any different than what's always been happening. It's just the names are changed and different people that are now no longer in power in the GOP and aren't benefiting from this are offended at the things that, that, that were like this, that were done for them, that kept them in power all of this time. And you know what I found fascinating? It was watching the reaction to Tucker Carlson's commentary on capitalism and materialism uh, last week on Fox. And, and this is the kind of conversation, frankly, we have needed a Fox News to have for a long, long time. And it, and it used to back in the 90s and early 2000s when Bill O'Reilly was writing Culture Warrior books, but doesn't have it anymore. Now, now they kind of just have all process arguments and, you know, talking points arguments and, you know, typical political fare. Um, now, whether you agree with everything he was trying to say or not, and there were some, I thought, some legitimate criticism of some of Tucker's takes by like Ben Shapiro, for example. But, but that was about 20% of the criticism of Tucker's yeah. views that I saw. The other 80% were people who immediately, because he invoked Mitt Romney, or immediately said some profits come with such a huge cultural cost, they're not worth it. That must mean he's a socialist now that only reinforced and verified every criticism Tucker was was attempting to point out. Why? Because he stepped on their shibboleth. Because he stepped on their idol. Because people like, who is this? Is Manu Rajay, whatever his name is, literally goes into McConnell's office gets what his talking points are and goes out and writes them as a quote unquote article, because that's what goes on in a lot of so-called 
conservative media today. That's really what it is. And then I think there are some earnest people who are looking at the fact that the Democratic Party, and this is another chapter in my book, there, there aren't any liberals anymore. There's really leftist America versus what's left of America. What do I mean by leftist? See, what's the difference between a leftist and a liberal? A liberal is somebody who wants government to permit you to do things that God says are dumb or immoral. A leftist is somebody who wants government to compel you to do them. That's the difference. Okay, and so that's that's what the Democratic Party has become. And so I do think there are some of our brethren now who are looking at that and realizing that that this is at an existential nature where we've now got the White House White House reporters at CNN taking to Twitter to condemn Mike Pence's wife for working at a Christian university and saying that she's a bigot uh, for for, that. that We've got Robert Costa, who used to be the White House beat reporter at the National Review and then went to work at Washington Post. And last week is writing about your buddy Ross Vogt having, quote, problematic comments about Muslims. So when looked at what it was that Ross Vogt said, and basically what Ross Vogt said was New Testament orthodoxy since before 600 years before there actually was a Muslim. And oh, by the way, if you're a Muslim, you think Christians are condemned by what you view as a false theology as well. But see, there's some of our brethren now, there's the click-servative hacks, the opportunists. And then there's some of our brethren now, though, that feel like they're stuck because they're seeing how radicalized the left is. And they're beginning to feel as if this is such a clear and present danger right now that I have to I have to look the other way on things I would not have looked the other way before, because this guy's got a gun pointed at my head and he's cocked the trigger. And so so we're kind of guys like you and me are now kind of caught in this in this triangulation vortex between outright hacks and sellouts. Uh, And then people who feel like maybe we got to make some accommodations on some things we wouldn't have accommodated in the past because of where we're at. And then guys like you and I come along and say, hey, we understand why you feel that way. But but we're in this position because we did that for the last 20 years. We can't afford to do it anymore. At some point, we have to stand and fight. And and that's the thing. I think so many of our colleagues have the frog in the boiling water syndrome where they don't understand where the political barometer, political thermometer really is where we are on the scale. I found amazing this guy, Jay Cost, among others at National Review, were lamenting, you know what? It used to be that in the 90s, we had a shutdown over limited government and spending. And now it's over what they were basically intimating is, you know, racial, racist, you know, nationalist uh, type of type of issues. And what I found amazing is they didn't realize that was a self-indictment of their own position. <laughs> They're right. We didn't <laughs> have a shutdown over immigration. You know why? Because in 1996, it actually started out as the Welfare Reform Act. It was about ensuring that no legal immigrant should ever be a public charge and should ever be on welfare. And then they had... <clears throat> Ira, 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 which started out as um, Immigration and the American Interest Act, the Republicans were going to literally end <coughs> illegal immigration. Everything we want to do, the 25 things in there, and then slash legal immigration by two-thirds, cut off all – I mean all this stuff was there. The Democrats didn't like the le- the legal stuff. But the illegal stuff was so no-brainer that Republicans originally put the legal immigration provisions onto it as a, as a hope of having the whole thing pass. Democrats balked. They didn't pass that, but they did pass the legal immigration stuff. So much of the stuff is that we want to do is actually on the books, and the courts just 
gutted it and illegally and or the executive branches over the years, you know, didn't follow it. And now the courts are codifying their lack of following it. Anyway, that that was a no brainer. The Democrats, they don't even realize that they have moved over because the Democrats were, were different on it. And as far as the fiscal stuff, I mean, look, Trump was never going to be a big fiscal conservative, but you brought up Russ vote. He told me in a private conversation, he said, I have never seen a time, right? He's OMB director now. I mean, that's Mr. Finance, that he has never seen a time where Trump was not open to cutting spending, right? He was always open to it. The movement, these very people that, you know, it's the cat and mouse game. If you're talking immigration, well, well, why, why don't we do uh, fiscal? And then, okay, well, then when it's time to do that, they're nowhere to be seen either. When it's time to do social, they're nowhere yep. to be seen either. And Trump is actually more open to it than they are. We just don't ask for it. We don't want it. There is, um, uh, because of my work with the Gingrich campaign in 2012, I got to be uh, I got to be somewhat buddies with former Congressman J.C. Watts, who basically came out of self-imposed political exile to support Newt's run for the presidency. And when I asked him why he did that, uh, and I labeled, I list, I, 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 you know, listed all the problems that Newt had politically, and he agreed with everyone. And I said, well, then why are you still coming, sticking your neck out for him? He goes. Because for those first 200 days, I served under his leadership in the Congress. I think he's crazy enough that he might actually try to do something other than just manage the decay. And him and I got into this conversation about why he left. Uh, and we had several conversations about this, Daniel. And one of them, I, I, one of them I, I share in the book that I have permission to share. And, and, and he talks about how um, he's thankful to the civil rights movement that without them, a black kid like him from rural Oklahoma would have never been able to be the starting quarterback for the Oklahoma Sooners. And he goes, but a funny thing happened after I, after I, I got that gig and I got my degree and I became successful, not all, but a good portion of those uh, civil rights leaders that made it help make it possible and paved the way for him. Suddenly they were offended that he was now successful. He would, that he was really no more of no more use to them as a success story, that it's almost as if they would have preferred that he would have continued to be a failure. And he goes, when I, when I, we came to Washington, that 94 class and Steve Largent and myself and Newt Gingrich and, 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 and that whole team of people. And, you know, we took over for people like Ben Weber, Trent Lott, Newt Gingrich, who were plotting to overthrow the old GOP establishment under Bob Michael. And of course, Trent Lott is a total swamp hack now. And he goes, we were going to change everything. And for a while, I thought that we would. He goes, but the more the, the longer I stayed, I began to watch the conservative movement make the same devolution that I saw the civil rights movement. And he said that's a devolution from a movement to an industry oh, that it became man. more about selling conferences, selling out conferences, selling books, uh, speaker gigs, cable news contributorships, and less about actually changing the system in advancing policy. And, and he goes, and that's why I left. I went through this already as a black man in the civil rights movement. I didn't want to go through it a second time as a conservative. Uh, so I left. Uh, I self-imposed exile, went into the ministry and went back home to Oklahoma. Now, keep in mind, he left Congress like 15 years ago. Things are a hell of a lot worse and quick servity now. One of the other stories he told me plays right into what you were just talking about. And, I, you know, Dick Armey used to come on WHO Radio while I worked in Des Moines on our morning show. 
And I, I've listened to his interviews, and I would be shocked because I remember loving Dick Army, you know, as a young conservative activist during after the '94 revolution. And he would just come on there and trash Jim Dobson and Christian conservative leaders. And I was a I was a baby Christian listening to this, and I'm like, what the hell is this guy's problem? What's his issue? You know? And and I asked J.C. Watts this question in one of our conversations, and he told me a story, and it's in the book as well. And he said, you know, after the '98 midterm elections. He goes, we were really on the defensive after the impeachment. We all thought we were going to lose our majorities and everything else. And, you know, we, we actually held on to them, uh, became the first Republican uh, majority to hold on to a majority, uh, you know, since before World War II. And Dick Armey called in a couple of prominent Christian conservative leaders, he told me. He goes, I won't tell you who they are. He goes, all I'll tell you is they were, there are names you would know. And Dick Armey, who was the House Majority Leader at the time, called them in and said, you know what? Um, you guys worked with us to not take some really controversial culture war votes that might have really, you know, inflamed the other side all the more with how much their turnout was buzzed with, you know, impeachment um, backlash. Thank you. We want to reward you. We've got some political cover now. We got a lame duck in the White House. We already got him to sign the Defense of Marriage Act. Give us, you know, do you have one or two? We, there are one or two items. He didn't tell me what the issues were. He goes, there's one or two items. Dick Army told these guys, we know you really want. We're in a position now, we, you know, we can't promise whatever Trent Lott will do in the Senate, but we're in a position now, we can give this to you in the House. And those leaders looked at Dick Army and said, you know what, on second thought, it's better for us in terms of fundraising and mobilization if you don't give us those issues, because we can continue to run on them. <laughs> and Dick Army was so furious at this that it basically um, turned uh, him against uh, Christian conservatives in the party uh, from that time forward. Wow. It, it's it's very sad when I look back at the 90s and I look at literally we have given universes since then. Uh, if you look on every social, fiscal, there's nothing. There's nothing left, which brings me to the final thing. We could talk forever. We've got to have you on more often. Final part of your book that at least we're going to discuss now. There's a lot more there. Again, it's available at Amazon.com. Truth Bombs Confronting the Lies Conservatives Believe. (sighs) A lot of this is not necessarily intellectual or moral, although I believe there is an intellectual and moral crisis in this fledgling movement. A lot of it boils down to the big dollar. Um, you, You talk about it becoming an industry. I find this all the time... I'm at a point in my career where I can't really grow more money or prominence wise based on what I want to do. But, you know, I'm thankful that we have our flagship here, that I'm not, I I have it. I could send my kids to private school and still have a modest home. And I don't desire anything more. I just want to speak the truth. But Mm -hmm. none of my friends are in that position. And what happens is you have to work. Everyone's got to eat. You got to find a job in this business if this is what you want to do. A lot of people have good things to say. A lot of people know the truth. But they're either off the field or if they get on the field, well, then they got to make money. What I'm finding is that I'll be in a rush. I'll be like, man, we got to do this. We got to do that. I'll call people up and be like, yeah, Daniel, I can't really do that. Or I don't know. I don't have time. And I'm looking around and all too often, I'm the first man at the scene of so many big issues and then i realized the issue and i don't know how we get around this there is no money 
in what we want to do. Well, what do we believe in? We don't believe in special interests, right? We believe in one special interest, the whole of the union, the whole of the people, right? Within the confines of law and the constitution, you do what is good for the whole of the people. Well, there's no whole of the people constituency. There's no money behind sovereignty. There's no money behind security. There's no money behind civil society. Um, and, and this is really how, over the last generation, the left didn't just win, you know, certainly double down on academia, entertainment, um, media, foundations. They've turned the corner on owning business and, and the military leadership. Everything you can imagine, they got. They got it. They got it everywhere. That's how we've moved from a matter of one generation from everyone except for the most radical Democrats have to be lock them up in terms of crime. Now, I'm the last man standing on not being Michael Dukakis on crime, which was the bread and butter issue of the Republican Party for, for a generation because the money is all on the other side. And even people yeah. want to do the right thing. Well, they got to get money. So they wind up working for, like a friend of mine is working for, Ralph Reed has this new outlet. I'm forgetting what it is. What was the first thing they worked on? Jailbreak. You know, for example, um, you know, we all thought Trump, even in best case scenario, he's going to be a shill for the rainbow jihad. A New York values guy, this and that. Comes in, mm-hmm. says, I am getting rid of the stupid transgender edict in the military. The the generals um, engage in civil disobedience and the courts engage in civil disobedience. And, you know, we had what's called the Hartzler Amendment. Vicki Hartzler, one of the few that actually kind of tries to push conservative initiatives on these issues, had an amendment to block funding for sex change operations in the military, castration in the military. So conservatives come in and they're like, for Trump's like, hey, what, what do you want? Kind of like the Dick Army story. And they're like, well, you she, um, we want criminal justice reform. And he's like, well, is that, that conservative? Oh, yeah, very conservative. I, I, I mean, we know where it's coming from. We know where this stuff is coming from. It's all mm-hmm. money. Everything we want to do, whether it's a proper think tank, tank proper C4, a proper electoral vehicle, you need money. There is nobody who has money who agrees with you and me. This is a major theme which you're addressing, and, and it has several tentacles that would that we could do an entirely different podcast on this. Let me just kind of try to put it in a nutshell this way. A lot of people, you've heard analysts say, you know, we're really overdue for a major political realignment. No, we had one. They just missed it or they ignored it. You know, the previous major political realignment we had came around Roe v. Wade, and that was the advent of uh, Catholics and evangelicals forming an alliance that, you know, between Paul Weyrich and D. James Kennedy and Jerry Falwell Sr. That, orig- that became known as the Christian right, uh, the third leg of Reagan's stool. But we've had a major pol- political realignment since then. It just hasn't been within the electorate. It's been within the donor classes. The Lee Iacocca corporate America is gone. Um, the, the corporate America that for so many years would underwrite causes like the ones you just talked about Either A, because they agreed with them, and B, in most cases, they didn't really care, but they, they viewed the same Democrats that were promoting these ungodly causes were also a threat to their business plan and bottom line. So they would fund us as co-political belligerents, as, as allies. Well, what's happened is there's, there, the generation, that generation of leaders is gone. 
And it's being replaced by, by, by our generation, the Gen Xers, who were all worked over by political correctness on college campuses. And, and so what's happening now is now it's youth soccer economics. We don't have to we don't deal with, with, with greedy CEOs anymore because no one cares about being number one. Everybody's worried they, that they're not number none. And where you really saw this is in the is in the Obamacare battle. 25 years before Obamacare, when Hillary Clinton tried to do this, mm. the health insurance industry mobilized and didn't, spent millions of dollars running those Harry and Alice ads. Do you remember those ads, Daniel, where they read about the specifics of Hillary Care and how terrible it was? They spent millions of dollars destroying Hillary Care. Why didn't they do it this time? Um, the same. Let me pose it another way. When, when our conservative congressmen a few years ago were screaming, drill, baby, drill in the Congress, how come, when, how come Exxon wasn't screaming, drill, baby, drill? How come instead they were running commercials for their green jobs uh, initiatives? On yeah, and they're now promoting Why? global warming, by the way. Yes. Yes. Why? Why? Same answer. It's because the new generation of corporatists has figured out, I can just buy off the system, and I agree with their morality. I agree with Planned Parenthood. I agree with the rainbow jihad anyway. So to get what I want economically, I'll just buy these politicians off. And Nancy, the Nancy Pelosi's of the world will realize, you know what? Um, yeah, you know what? Uh, we'll screw everybody else's district as long as you put those Google and Apple jobs in mind. And so they're not they don't fund any of our causes anymore. Uh, in fact, they're funding the other side's causes. So what you have is this. On the other side, you have men like Warren Buffett and Tom Steyer and others. These are some of their wealthiest progressive donors. And they're intellectually and morally to the left. If you go to where if you go, if you go find a working class neighborhood in Maryland where you live and, and, and they voted for a Democrat city councilman or county supervisor for 40 years. And, and you ask them, hey, what's a guy? Hey, do you think what's a woman? Hey, what do you do? Do you think a marriage is nine people of five different genders? They're going to say, hell no. OK, so the average Democrat billionaire progressive donor is to the left yeah, of the and, and average Steve, Democrat Steve, voter. I, I don't want to derail you too much. Just well, one thing you mentioned, my hometown, Baltimore, um, Baltimore County, it's very blue. Every Democrat who comes door to door says I'm going to be tough on crime. They do the opposite. But yes. they say yep. they're going to be tough on crime. Yes. So the Democrat donor base is to the left of the average Democrat voter, which drives the party to the left. The Republican donor base is to the left of every Republican of the average Republican voter. So they drive that party to the left as well, which means you go left after every election. You're really just determining the rate of speed. The Democrats see the, are driving down Everybody's driving down the lost highway. They come upon the exit, ash heap to history, next right. Democrats see that, and they put the pedal to the metal. They can't get there soon enough. Republicans see that, and they check their mirrors. They make sure they're, they're 10 and 2 on the steering wheel, and the seatbelts are firmly attached. They turn on their turn signal. They merge politely. And uh, they make sure they never go more than five miles an hour with the speed limit because we have to you know, do this in an orderly fashion. But they get off at the same exit as well because the people writing the checks in both parties yep. largely want the same things. It might be for different reasons. You know, the, the Koch brothers might want amnesty because they want a surfer class, a surf class of indentured servant workers. And, the, and, the, and Tom Steyer may want it because he wants uh, a whole bunch of Democrat voters that will help him vote to get rid of your guns. Whatever the motivations are behind it is irrelevant because the results are all 
the same. And when you look at the, the Faustian bargains we make, and I talked about this on our show earlier this week, again, following up on Tucker Carlson's comments. You know, I get if I get if you're if you're a conservative councilman in Detroit representing the one conservative ward in Detroit, like say like like a suburb like a Sterling Heights or a Gross Point, and you're looking at Detroit needing revitalization, and Apple comes to you and says we're going to bring twenty thousand jobs to Detroit, and you're thinking to yourself, you know what, man, I know these people are all going to come and vote liberal, but this economy, these families are suffering. We need this, so you go with it. I get that. How much freaking more economic growth does Texas name? How many more jobs do they need? So what they're going to do is basically what they're going to do via, via, via Apple is they're basically going to ship in the last remaining percentage of the vote Beta O'Rourke needed to beat Ted Cruz. Why? Why are they going to do that? How, not, they don't. How much more? That's the point Tucker was trying to make. Not all profit is good. Do we? Are we really going to sit here and say Larry Flint is a great capitalist? Are we? Is that the argument well, the Mitt Romneys of the world are going to make? Is that the argument David French wants to make? All profit is good, no matter how it's done, provided it's lawful and it produces jobs. All profit is good. That's an amoral argument, and that and, and the other side doesn't make amoral arguments. They make immoral arguments, but they're all making the same immoral argument. And they speak to the morality make of the it. Same moral arguments. Yeah, exactly. And and I, I just want to end with that. We're going late, but this is too hot to to leave on the table. I want to end with, with Tucker's idea because Tucker's idea is exactly what I said on the show, but with a different twist. Obviously, you and I are a little different than some of our colleagues in the sense that we have our own affirmative beliefs. So we don't craft them in terms of a foil to the to the other person. So, you know, I want to be a populist. Well, no, no, no. We actually, here's what real free markets looks like. The thing is the mm-hmm. capitalism you see, we don't have capitalism in America today. We have venture socialism. So what, exactly what we right. have is yep. we're so capitalistic that people have found a way to make socialism, uh, capitalism profit off of socialism. Why don't you see... <clears throat> The insurance companies, uh, you know, fighting Obamacare, and in fact, they fought us tooth and nail. They want guaranteed issue and community rating, actuarially insolvent regulations. Why? Well, because they get the subsidies, they get the mandates, they get the contracts yep. on Medicare, Medicaid, and then once you have the guaranteed income, so then in that case, you actually then want the mand- the regs because it boxes out any you you can never no new insurance company will ever start. That's exactly right. In, in that is exactly history. right. And I could do yep. that with ag. You know this in Iowa with yep. the stupid farm yep. bills. You will you will have just like you'll have three just, private. Just I, yeah. Let me can I, let me share this with your audience. So. In, over the past year, I worked, I consulted with one of the most successful and wealthiest ethanol barons in the industry. And he was the guy that endorsed Ted Cruz against, um, against the rest of his industry in the last caucus cycle. And the project we worked on was using rural America's leverage with Trump to say, we want an end to the RFS. We want to be able to grow in states like Iowa, Nebraska, Michigan, Wisconsin. We want to grow as much corn as we want, and we want to do whatever we want. And if people want to buy it in the way we sell it, package it, refine it, process it, great. And if they don't, then we lose. In other words, he wanted to be removed from the shackles of what you're describing. Because the reality, because what's happening is his industry, he's worried about it. Because while he's made a lot of money under the current constraints, because of the cost that came with the subsidies and and the mandates, 
they now are struggling to get, they, they can't, they don't have the entrepreneurial aspect of their industry is gone because basically six people run the whole damn run thing. Run the whole thing because land depreciation, you can't buy land. Just like, yes. just like Steve, what you're seeing in Iowa is just like what Obamacare and Medicaid expansion did to healthcare. You literally have no private practice. It's MedStar, LifeBridges, OBGYN, not Dr. Tom Smith's OBGYN. You're going to have three private practices left in America. Likewise, you're going to have three farmers left yep. in America. And I, 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 told, I told my client, I said, if you do this, your opposition is actually going to come from the other ethanol people, your, other, your peers that are giants in your industry. Because if you deregulate at this level, then it's no longer going to be four or five corporate farms or a string of co-ops like you run. Any guy, any, any independent farmer who realizes, you know what, we need cheaper fuel and I can't make this kind of profit margin off of the livestock. He now, the market is open to him to compete with you guys. It's not just you get to compete with, uh, with, with, uh, uh, you know, with gasoline, with petro. Sure. You'll have internal comp- competition as well, and your your peers will push back on this. They won't want that. Well, sure enough, what do you think happened? Exactly that. Exactly that. So we call the governor up, Governor Kim Reynolds here in Iowa, talk to her office. They think it's a great idea and something they can sell to President Trump. The problem is, though, she can't bring it to President Trump unless the whole the whole industry is united, because if they're not united, the White House is going to say, we're not getting in the middle of your own civil war. Well, the rest of the industry didn't want it. The rest of the industry said, well, we just want another 5% blend. Why? Because what they didn't want was the internal competition. That's what they didn't want. It, it, it's gone from conservative and liberal to establishment and activists. You know what it really is? It's kind of old money versus new money now. It really is an aristocratic sort of, you know, patrician versus plebeian uh, is really, is re- and, and Trump, which is ironic because of, of who he is and how much money and everything he has. He speaks to that divide. Yep. And that's why, despite all of his faults, that's why he currently has the power that he currently has. No, and that, that that's exactly the point. We don't have capitalism the same way we have incumbency in politics. You have incumbency in the market. So we want to fight the system. We recognize, and this is, you know, speaking of Steve King and Western civilization, it's not just America. It's all of the West. We have elites that it, it, it's, I could give biblical reasons for this. I could give practical reasons how it's evolved over 50, 100 years, but accelerated last 10, 15 years. Um, they are rotten to the core. We want to bust up the system. But if you're an incumbent economic power, you like the status quo. So you will make sure, by definition, you have made it under the venture socialism. So let me give you a, a couple of examples of things that you would think a broken clock is right twice. And uh, people like me would be able to get industry money behind some of my causes twice a day because we would happen to align with certain industries. Maybe they would be more of a profit. I would be more of a principal. But you know, same thing, no. We have we are at a situation where we're never we never have money anytime, any place because we're fighting the incumbents. Okay. So ethanol was a great example. You would think the gas and oil industry would be all over me. They never contact me contacted me. Why? Because they love the ethanol mandate, because they have a whole trading credit on the trading market yep. on the RINs credits. They I mean it's beautiful, innovative, the cafe not standards. To mention, not to mention they're actually subsidized even more than ethanol is. 
nobody just ever talks about that. But yeah. Yes, you're yeah. Exactly the, the, right. the car companies, um, Trump wanted to alleviate the cafe standards. They didn't support it. They just wanted some tweaks in the uh, cafe. You have equivalent of the rinse credits. They also have trading credits to to, to fulfill them. Okay. Um, everyone is certain that I'm bought out by the pharmaceutical industry because I've, I'm the only one in the country. I've pretty much written a dossier of 30 articles on how government's misdiagnosing the nature and the cause of, of the poly drug crisis, not an opioid crisis. So yeah, I'm trying to implicate open borders, criminal justice deform, jailbreak the drug traffickers. It's not um, prescription drugs, pain medication. Oh, of course, he's for the pharmaceuticals. No, they're pushing this legislation because now they have the contracts to create the new formulas. Okay. All right, Daniel, you oppose jailbreak. Everyone opposes jailbreak because I'm a good person. And all the people with foundations are good people. And good people want, um, they don't care. It's not good to care about peaceful people. It's good to care about criminals. Okay, so all the money's there. But Daniel, isn't there money what about the private prison industry? Guess what? The two biggest private prison industries lobby for the bill because they have the contracts for all the home confinement and the different arrangements, the halfway houses that they're going to have under this yep. thing. They, this is what... Steve, I can't even benefit from a broken clock being right twice. I can't find a single issue where there's money behind what we want to do. Treason never prospers. What's the reason? Because whenever treason prospers, none will dare call it treason. This is what you're describing is why I don't believe there'll be any global economic collapse. Um, why I don't. God bless Ron Paul. If we were going to have an economic calamity, yep. um, we would have had it by now. We don't have it. He keeps talking about natural business cycles. We, we have been artificially inseminated this entire time. <laughs> and and now, what you, now what you have with all of these global entanglements uh, is who's going to call on the note? What, we're the, we, we have more of a middle class than China does. So who's going to buy all their cheap goods if they call in the note of debt to the United States? They're not going to – they're not – we're not – we are truly not going to leverage our landlord any more than they're going to evict their only tenant. And so everybody's entangled in many respects – this is very similar to what Europe was like with the Habsburg dynasty at the turn of, 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 the, of the 20th century. Uh, that's how incestuous a lot of this has become. That's, that's, the, that's the real idea behind things like, um, uh, you know, the, the, the European Union or a, a North American Union. What will happen here is in the next 20 to 30 years when we racked up so much debt that the inflationary constructs are so difficult that they stymie any serious economic growth for us to grow beyond our current debt load. We'll just reboot our currency and start all over again, like the Europeans did uh, 25 years ago uh, with the European Union and essentially cancel out that currency and start a whole new one in order to begin the cycle again. That's that's why they're and that's also why they're not going to back out of Brexit. I predicted that the day after they won that election on that referendum, they would never leave and they're not going to mark my words. There's too much money in all of this, too much gold in them, their hills. And that's why we always preach on our show if we don't see moral and spiritual revival, then freedom and liberty, as it's been known, Western civilization, as it's been known, will be lost to history. No, it, it, exactly. Um, and, and this really has to be the final thing because I've got to run on to the next one. Um, we we're supposed to do a half an hour, but we're, we're way over an hour. This is great. Um, what do Let's you think honest, of this? Everybody that tuned in for this podcast knew that this was going to happen. Yeah, everyone, come on. You I mean, and get, I got together. Get the two of us together. Yeah, so I, I, I got... <laughs> Steve, this 
this is something that's bothering me because it straddles two important things. And it ties into this. There's this maniacal obsession from our colleagues on that, um, whatever that Bronx gal is, the Ocasio Cortez. Ocasio Cortez. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they just, I, I've never talked about her, but they're, they're, they're very into her. And, you know, she talks about a 70% tax rate. And we have 50 emergency issues in this country. I mean, being we are being raped. When you have the ability of a criminal Casa de Maryland that aids and abets illegals, someone could break into our country, sue local law enforcement for following the law and, and acting on an ICE detainer, and have a 10-year litigation in Maryland to keep her there in order to sue law enforcement... <coughs> So that she could drop three anchor babies intermittently, suck us dry of welfare and our own citizenship. And then, oh, well, you can't deport her because now she has to spend more time collecting her funds. And Casa de Maryland, which is violating federal federal law of transporting, harboring, inducing um, one other uh, of uh, 1324 of the INA. And, um, you know, they, they, they're legal. We're illegal. W- 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 this is so much bigger than, than than tax rates, right? So there's a lot, of, but no, no, no one's giving a vision. No one's sounding an alarm on how basically um, a, a, a federal, a district judge could say um, your wife is unconstitutional and they'll listen to it. But when, when one member of Congress that has no power talks about a 70% tax rate, everyone goes nuts. And am I wrong for thinking this? I like her. I like her and Bernie Sanders and those people. Like you said, Nancy Pelosi opposes single payer. People don't, a lot of people don't know that. Now we have single payer, but it's a special type of single payer. It's the venture socialist one funneled through the quasi private, quasi public business, not literally just having the post office run it like in Europe where you don't have any, you know, any private prof- profit from it. Um, they, they need it, they want it because those are their donors. Isn't it worth? Well, let, let me let me just set up one, one more step to this. What has happened the last generation is that, like you said, the corporations have become cultural Marxists, refugees, jailbreak, open borders, homosexual agenda, you name it, um, virtue sig- signaling up the wazoo. And then even on fiscal issues, we established they're, they're Marxists. They're all for individual welfare. They're all for Obamacare because that's like kind of their writ of passage because it, you know, it, 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 it makes their profits kosher. Oh, yeah, we're going to double down on food stamps. They'll, they'll, they'll lobby for all that stuff. So they're not, it's not like we're getting fiscal stuff. The one thing they need is the tax rates. So that's the one thing we've been delivering on. And that shields them from the pain of Democrats. And therefore, they could turn around and serve as the enforcers of cultural and fiscal Marxism for them. Isn't it a better idea that we just step back and say, hey, let these Casio Sanders people talk. Let them roll back some of the corporate tax cuts. Not that I agree with the economics of it, but if you look as a whole, isn't this really where Tucker is coming from? Yes. What's happened with Ocasio-Cortez goes back to what we talked about earlier with conservative media. There is a, there's a group of conservative folks out there. She's just clickbait. They, they, they need a foil, and she's a very convenient one is number one. Then there's a group of people who I, and who and I've dabbled in this myself, who earnestly, because Ocasio-Cortez is the first of the next generation of leftists, meaning she's fully vested in Marxism and, and 
you know, if you look at the way Whoopi Goldberg got mad at her uh, on The View a couple of weeks ago, basically what Whoopi Goldberg was telling her is, listen, honey, don't get all uppity. America ain't willing to buy the Swedish jalopy yet. So we keep having to sell the really nasty, uh, you know, intersectionality undercoating race baiting that they will buy. Uh, and if you try to sell them the Swedish jalopy up front, they'll reject it and we'll lose all the progress we've made. That's really what they're upset about. And so I do think there is some constructive political discourse for us to when, when she's out there being that honest. And then the next day, Kamala Harris goes on the view, who's going to run for president and say, well, yeah, I guess I think it's a great idea. Because if their side goes out there and says she's too far left, their base will turn on that base will her base will then turn on that. So I do think there is a constructive chess aspect to it, not just a click conservative aspect to it. But on a separate level, if you're asking me, you know, you and I are both parents. And one of the most difficult things for a parent to do is when your child will not follow your wisdom and guidance is a willingness to give them the permission to fail in order to suffer the consequences and, and not to feel, not, not to engineer all of the happy outcomes because you can't stand watching them in pain. And one of the things you see God do as a parent all throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation is when the point comes that his children are adamant, they go beyond temptation, beyond rebellion to ingrate status. We want to do what we want to do, no matter how destructive it is. There, there's a certain point, and you know, Paul writes about this in Romans 1, uh, but you see this narrative throughout the scriptures. There's a certain point where God will remove his hand of restraint and order, and, and, and you know, Paul, the way Paul describes it in the letter to, he writes to the Corinthians, when he talks about a man who is sleeping with his mother, his stepmother, He's sleeping with his stepmother and he's at church. And Paul says, throw that guy out so that Satan will have his way with him, meaning throw him out so that he will face the wrath of God, to suffer the consequences for his actions in the hopes that that may spur him to repentance when he realizes the evil he's doing comes with a cost. That's kind of what I hear you saying. Um, and in many respects, and this is why, you know, we call you our prophet of woe and lamentation. And maybe your parents should have named you Jeremiah instead, uh, because in, in many respects, we are the people of Jeremiah's time. We, we are going to Jeremiah saying, we're making, we're making Israel great again. We've got Make Israel Great Again bumper stickers on the back of our, uh, on the back of our uh, oxen wagons. Uh, we've got the temple. You know, we've got, we've, got, we've, we've got things that should be religious relics, but we only pay attention to them a few times a year, so they're basically historical artifacts now. But because we still have these things, God would never judge us. God would never allow us to fall into calamity. Um, and then when Jeremiah warns us, we throw him down a well, and then we leave him there, and then we bring him back up, and we take him, give him a bath, and we feed him, and we say, hey, now that we've done these nice things for you and buttered you up a little bit, now will you tell us what we want to hear? And, and in many respects, that's kind of where we are. We're in this no man's land where there's still a lot of freedom and liberty and a lot of great things happening on a, on a, on a, on a certain level. And so there's that, that de-incentivizes us to, ex to confront the things yep. that, are, that are befalling us and awaiting us on an existential one. It's the political opioids, the political fentanyl, I call it. I, I, I don't know what to do about that, but I would agree with you. And I guess this is what Truth Bombs is, 
pick up your copy at Amazon. Um, it's really cheap now. It's uh, selling for twenty three bucks hardcover. You could get the Kindle for nine ninety nine. And yes, I mean, I I would say at worst we're Jeremiah. I don't think we're at Zachariah's time. We're gonna you're gonna be stoned in the temple. I do think people are open to hearing this um, after two years of Trump. However much they love him or lukewarm love him among our base, I think everyone recognizes whether they want to call it a deep state, a collapse of Western civilization, people realize it ain't working. It ain't working. I mean, in the long run, it's not helping. And I think people are more receptive to this message than they were, say, two years ago. Um, So I think it's great timing, Steve. We got to have you back another time. Do this again. We'll make it a little shorter next time, but our audience will eat this up. Thanks so much. Happy selling this book. And you know what? Fear God, make money, and tell the truth. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Same to you. All righty. God bless. Well, there you have it. That was Steve Dace. His book is Truth Bomb. Confronting the lies conservatives believe to our own demise, in parentheses, always been a good friend to me. Um, my wife has a rule that I can't call Steve too late at night. Otherwise, I'm never going to go to bed. You know, you get the two of us on the phone, forget it. We got to solve the world's problems. I hope this was stimulating for you guys, a little different than what we usually do, but we've covered a lot of the key, really the key impediments to actually having a movement. Um, Next, we got to work on what to do about it. But again, the first way to solve a problem is to diagnose it and recognize the severity of it, the causes of it, the character traits of the problems and the people that cause those problems. Make sure to pick up your copy. And we are just getting started. We're going to come back with our next episode soon. Long day. Hope my voice holds up. Thank you all for bearing with me with my uh, funny sounded voice today. But I think it was at least better than yesterday. Until next time, hang on for episode 340. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.